People down on this side is live on Facebook. Okay. February the 24th, 2019, lecture discussion number 54 on the book of Joel. And unsurprisingly, due to the usual causes that, that occur because of this Internet system that we have, we have filled up with questions that are pouring in, so to speak. Pouring, of course, a relative term. And now that I have been so designated, I can't... Uh, those of you who were here last week, did I get that right? I hope so. I should put it in a box. Maybe some stars. Lightning. Smoke. Anyway, it's going to be a long day today. I'm now the answer me that dude. I was I was designated Christian, if you will, by Ralph from New Zealand, New Zealand, New Zealand. I'm not feeling well today. I think you can tell from my uh, my voice. I also got a letter from Sherry. Um, um, so this just cracks me up when I get these kinds of letters. Not cracks me up. They delight me. I would say. Let me uh, tell you about Sherry here. Just really fast. Due to the aging process, her aging process, in the dissertation I wrote earlier, she writes manuscripts, monographs to me. It's incredible what she's able to, to do. I'm always impressed. I wrote earlier that some may refer to as an email. Yeah, yeah, it's 50 pages. I forgot to ask about the significance of the D-Wave system quantum computer. Is the instantaneous downloading of massive amounts of information the only thing this machine is capable of? What about CERN and the Hadron Collider? Are they trying to reach other dimensions? Is that even possible? Hmm, excuse me. That is not atypical for me. I get these all the time, this kind of stuff. But uh, what she's talking about there is uh, essentially when I was a young man going to uh, electrical physics, I dealt with... Uh, 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 JFETs, junction field effect transistors, and um, metal oxide substrates, and logic systems, the very beginning of logic systems, and the, uh, that's how old I am. There are no calculators in those days, but they had begun making transistors smaller and smaller and smaller so that you could actually do what's called uh, low voltage and high voltage uh, calculations. In other words, you assign low voltages and you assign high voltages. That's X's and O's or ones and zeros or uh, five volts and zero volts or five volts and negative five volts. All of that stuff is what is a typical um, silicone transistor and what quantum computers are. And I'm not an expert on quantum computers. I just have enough background to understand the technology a little bit. What they are doing is not using silicone, and they're not using the, the... The technology isn't that much different from when I went to school 48 years ago. You're going to be 50 of that faster than I wish. The point is, is all what they've done is they've miniaturized it. Uh, and they're continuing to miniaturize it. They make tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of transistors, and they put them in, in sheets 
uh, now. They were all individual. I would pull transistors out of locomotive systems and replace it. They were large. They were this big. Some of them were this big, depending on the power requirements of voltage levels. So what they've done now, though, is the silicone transistors are gone, and we have superconductor metals now. What that means is when those metals are cooled, uh, they demonstrate quantum mechanical effects. What that means is, is instead of having uh, a, a zero and a one, I am able to cool those things down so much. And because of the metals they're made of, they're CMOS now, complementary metal oxide substrate or metal oxide semiconductor, same thing. So what I'm able to do is I'm able to place that device, which is a tiny little transistor, essentially, into, instead of a one or a zero state, I can put it in one, zero, or in both, which is, as you know, is superposition. So I have the classical state of the original transistor system and the superposition state. That is Schrodinger's cat, isn't it? Do you recognize that? So that's why Schrodinger was so invaluable, not only philosophically, but electrically. So that is what they're doing now. They have what's called a D-Wave. That's the manufacturer, a D-Wave quantum computer. And what it can do now, essentially, is exactly what Sherry says. It can download massive amounts of information. It isn't actually calculating yet. Um, it is an incredibly complex device. And if it begins to progress, then uh, computing will change. Just like phones changed and radios changed. And when I was a young man, they had something called the green latrine. Do you remember that, uh, Ken? It was Alan Elmendorf. It was a green building. They called it the green latrine. You, you would remember. You were there, of course. Both of you. Inside of the green latrine, it was a massive building, equal, easily the size of this structure here. And it was all concrete. And that was the computer for uh, what's now J-Bear. But in those days, it was Elmendorf for Rip. And it was just filled with, with relay systems. And that was even pre-transistor. So it was bottle relays, all clicking and clacking, just trying to add and subtract. The supercomputers um, have to be cooled. Again, they require superconductivity. In other words, they have to get down to very, very low temperatures so that the conductivity is increased. Uh, and they are the size of, oh my gosh, probably that speaker right there. Extraordinary. That interests people who write to Cliffside, who listen to Cliffside. Here's Ralph, who identified me as the answer me that dude, for which I will forever be grateful. Thank you so much, he says. I had to chuckle to myself when you thought I was young, because I did. I thought he was young because of dude. And I was so happy that I was I was reaching the young with my discussions on supercomputers and the like. But I'm not. He's 62. Oh, God. I still, nonetheless, and we're, you can see me now. Of course, you could see me earlier, Ralph. I, I of course, cannot see you. But uh, uh, I'm still clinging to that. So, uh, so I'm back to my usual demographic here. <laughs> Here's what he says. New Zealand is, of course, way ahead of the rest of the world. And you assuming that using the word dude is young is okay by me. Different colloquialisms, I guess. However, I was more interested in hearing what you thought about God. 
And he gives me a specific thing, and I don't want to reveal it here. I'll talk about it in a second. Perhaps you'd be gracious enough to expand upon that, please. By the way, I love your sense of humor. Proof. Ralph has given me proof every week now. It's amazing. But I fear, he says, some in your audience miss. Oh, yeah, Ralph. <laughs> that is a, that's definitely a fact. You and I are very similar that way. Blessings to you, dude. Kindness regards, Ralph from New Zealand. Okay, Ralph's question is about infinite consciousness and timelessness. Let me put that on the board. Oh, those of you on the Internet and here, uh, New Jerusalem and physical death is, uh, I didn't erase it because it is such an important subject. Start thinking about it because it's coming soon, maybe next week. But what Ralph wants to know about is infinite consciousness. And I don't, and timelessness, that's, uh, that's what he's asking. Those are complicated questions. You probably are aware that Minkowski and Einstein and others, many others, but Minkowski and Einstein uh, got a lot of credit for it. They're recognized uh, primarily, but they understood the necessity of time being included into the created order. If you were here last week, the created order is energy, matter, space, and time. They understood that. They combined it. They call it space-time. They made a membrane out of time and space, if you want to think of it that way, or a column. And everything happens inside that membrane. So it's part of the created order. Energy, matter, space, and time. What Ralph wants to know is about timelessness. Because if time is in the created order, and it is, then it has an origin. If it's created, then it has an origin. And all of that is the case. Time has a beginning. Time needs energy, matter, and space to exist because of entropy. First law of thermodynamics. Talked about that last week. What Ralph is interested in, not unlike Sherry, is this concept of timelessness and infinite consciousness. So what is timelessness? It's a, non, it's a non-entropy state. What is a non-entropy state where nothing is changing? God says something about himself, Malachi 3.6. Do you know what he says there? He says, for I am God and I change not. So he's immutable. He never changes. Entropy does not apply to God at all. So if he is in a non-entropy state, which he is by definition of immutability, immutableness is what he is. Not capable of change. He's incapable of change. So that means timelessness. What I want you to imagine a timelessness state. While you're doing it, you're doing it inside of time, aren't you? You're doing it in sequence. Is there sequence in a timelessness, in an immutable? For I am God and I change not. That is the question from Ralph. So work on that while I go on with the rest of the sermon. How do you answer? How do you describe a timelessness? 
How do you even word questions about timelessness without putting that question inside of time where you are? Try to think of a timeless sentence, a sentence that applies to timelessness or immutability or a non-entropy state. Okay, those are the kinds of questions that I get. Hence, I am the answer me that dude, which he said last week. And I have to, I'm getting these subjects all the time, and I feel obligated now to spend more time on uh, those questions. And they're mostly unrelated to the subject at hand. That's not happening here. I've got to answer them, irrespective of the application or the relevance to the current topic. I just feel that pressure now, because there's uh, a lot of people out there. And again, you might remember from last week that Ralph from New Zealand essentially wished to further discuss the created order. That's what we're doing. That's what he wanted me to do. And all of that stuff. And they're very close relatives of it. Entropy, as I said, void zero. Talked about void zero. That is, of course, as opposed to void one. Void one is a vacuum in space. And we know there is no vacuum in space. So it's not really a void. There is no vacuum because I have uh, electromagnetic interference. First thing you learn in electromagnetic interference class is that you have electromagnetic interference everywhere. Throughout the entire created order. So I have electromagnetic interference. Pressure on a vacuum. The vacuum is affected by it. Does that render it not a vacuum? I say yes. Some disagree with me. I can't believe it. But it happens more than I wish to admit. But that, uh, there's Ralph and Sherry. Void zero essentially is a spiritual framework. It's a spiritual System. How do you describe a spiritual system using physical terms? The concept of zero will result in, in an evaluation of imaginary numbers. We have to, in order to solve void zero, we end up in imaginary time and negative time, all kinds of marvelous subjects that no one cares about. Except maybe people in New Zealand, apparently. Um, and weird people who readily are diagnosed based on what church they attend, as you know. So I'll get to some of that today, but not really because i got other places to go, but I, I didn't want to leave it out today, and so I squeezed it in. Speaking of the bizarre, apparently it is now, as you know, if you read the news, a common practice for the millennial generation. If you're in the millennial generation, do not raise your hand ever here at Cliffside. Certainly don't identify yourself as being in this generation. This is not good news. Apparently, in this millennial generation, it's uh, common to manufacture and to fabricate an incident in order to capitalize financially on the performance of that uh, manufactured or fabricated incident. And the justification always seems to be the same, and I think it is always the same. Once the lie is exposed, that the stage incident reflects a genuine incident. In other words, I'm doing this because I believe it really happens. I can't find it happening, so I, I'm going to simulate it. It's a simulation. In other words, it's a, it is allowed to lie about something that you believe is actually happening. Happening. It's, uh, there's a new term for this. It's called imbecilic thinking. That's, I didn't make that up. It's exactly what's happening. And I must say, I have, I've, I've 
heard of or seen thousands of these kinds of incidents fabricated. Thousands of them. Um, Throughout my so-called professional religious career. And yes, so-called refers to the professional, the religious, and the career, in case you were wondering. Ralph will think that's funny. Anyway, sadly, the church has been doing this for centuries. It's what the church has done. Simulation. And I submit it has accelerated noticeably within the last hundred plus years. It's really going wild in the last hundred plus years. That's the rise of the cults. And I thought for a while that uh, the advent of cell phone cameras would attenuate, would actually eliminate the frequency of these perpetrated hoaxes in the church. But that does not seem to be happening. I thought as medical technology and the Internet began to explode, people could find out that these hoaxes were exactly that, complete lies. But it's not happening. It's not occurred. The economic benefit still out for, outstrips the risk of the shame of being caught. Being caught forging a miracle has not ever been a deterrent. Ask Benny Hinn. See how many planes he's got, how big his house is. I can name a hundred more of them. They've been doing it for 50 years, my whole life. They've been caught over and over and over again. doesn't matter to the people sending them money, and it doesn't matter to them. Thus, I'm not at all surprised to see those techniques used in the church for my whole so-called career gravitate to the societal. If the church degrades, the society follows. That's the rule. If the church becomes imbeciles, the, the society will become imbeciles. And the church has made a lot of money being imbeciles and treating their congregation as imbeciles. It goes on all over the city. It goes on all over every city. The Bible calls us the believing, the believing Christians to be wise and not fooled by simple reenactment simulations, counterfeit fables. Second Timothy 4, 4, Proverbs 1, 22. There are deceptions which lead to foolish the, vo- the foolish into slavery, Second Peter nineteen two nineteen. Jesus and I've ranted against this, as you know, for many many years. It, the Jesus Christ, the Lord God Almighty, says to His apostles, His apostles, as He sent them into Israel, into Israel, to perform true signs that the Messiah has come. This is what He says, Matthew ten five through ten. He tells them, God is telling his apostles to go into Israel, Matthew 10, 16 through 17. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and innocents as doves. But beware of men. If I give you any advice as you walk into any church you wish, beware. The wolves are all over the church. I'm going to prove that. Biblically, here in a minute. The church today is filled to the brim with unlearned sheep. It's been dumbed down purposely. There's a reason to make people unaware of what their Bible says. And the wolves are shearing those unlearned sheep at record rates. The prophets are pouring in. They keep... They go back and uh, redundancy, like the letters. I shouldn't have wrote pouring again. They're astonishing. The sheep are being shaved bald. 
Wisdom is not a common attribute in the church, which we would expect. What does Christ say about the final church age? He says it'll be filled with deception and money. Naked. You are naked, but you think you are rich. We're ordered to be wise, Proverbs 4, 1 through 5. Quit falling for these parlor tricks. Quit it. If I can get you to do anything, be skeptical. Take the ones that are happening nationally in the political arena. Did anyone believe any of these stories when they came out? No, you were skeptical. Walk into the church with the exact same skepticism. I don't care how much you like it. The church of this time sells the simple and is rich for their efforts. That's Revelation 3:14 through 17. We shouldn't be surprised. Actually, we should be comforted, right? This is supposed to happen. What do you think the percentage of the people who see through this nonsense is in the, in the entirety of the church? I'd be shocked if it was over 1%. Be shocked. Do what you can to be in the 1%. Be suspicious. Beware of men. If you're worshiping a pastor, you're a sucker. He's taking advantage of you. He's a man. I can give you a list of pastors. In this city, but all over the country, that are just, just stealing money. They're taught in the seminaries. I was taught, if you want to have a successful church, the one thing you have to do is stand behind a lectern on an elevated platform. Make yourself look tall. Dress really nice. Never dress down. Always wear nice clothes. Yeah, ooh, is right. Yeah. Don't ever coach the softball team. Don't ever work on the church building. Don't take the garbage out. Don't vacuum the floors. Don't clean the dishes. You're not to do that because it will diminish you. You want that congregation to worship you, to think that you are separated and elevated from them. That is what they teach them in, in the seminaries. If you don't do that, you'll get fired. Whatever you do, keep the, keep the performance of your, of your purity, of your piousness going as long as you can. You have churches where all the pastors dress in white. Very ornate, as you know. Separate and elevate. They do it because it works. Try to be in the 1%. I know it's hard. I know. I've watched it, like I said, my whole life. I'm coming to the end, and I think it is worse now than it has ever been. So if you have kids, if your children go into one of these churches and believe this stuff, then those kids will discard you and their faith. I guarantee it. Sooner or later, somebody with a phone will catch him. Just like what happened. And you're destroyed and you destroyed the congregation. But you do it. What makes them do it? Money. Don't they think that God will catch them? They don't care. Okay, where was I? 
It so happens, just so happens, that Revelation 1 uh, through 3 has been a subject of interest lately from the Internet and from some of you, specifically regarding the seven church prophecy. More specifically, is the seven church prophecy a prophecy in our book of Revelation 1 through 3? And if the seven church prophecy is not a prophecy, then what is it? Because it sure looks like a prophecy. In other words, what does the answer me that dude uh, think of the seven church property? Why does the answer me that dude keep calling the seven church prophecy the seven church prophecy? Well, I do that because the seven church prophecy in Revelation 1 through 3 is a prophecy. That's why. It may surprise you that some people find my position to be unsatisfactory. I know that's shocking. As fortune uh, would have it, though, the Revelation 7 church prophecy directly corresponds, has correspondence with the seven parables of Matthew 13. And some of those parables uh, include Mark 4. And there, some people have an eight-parable position, a nine-parable position. Some have a ten-parable position. Uh, I'm going to start with a seven-parable position this week, and we'll work on the others as time goes by, because I see the seven churches of Revelation tying directly to the seven um Parables of Matthew 13, right off the bat. And all sevens return to the first seven, so eventually I'll get back to Genesis, won't I? And also in the prophecies, I'm sorry, in the parables of Matthew 13, the subject of Satan is in the forefront. Satan is in the mix of those parables. He's in almost all of them, actually. Not quite, but we'll see about that. The first parable has Satan and his angels and the sower, as does the second, the tares, and the third, the mustard tree. All of them have Satan. And I've been asked to address these uh, three, uh, specifically these first three, if I could find the time. <coughs> Can time be found? Is time findable? What is required to find time? Who can find it? You have to do what to time to find it? Assign it a location. And then make it stationary. Who can do that? So if you go around saying, I, I can't help you because I can't find time, then, or somebody says that to you, you can say, well, of course not. Time's not findable. Anyway, the seven churches and the seven parables of Matthew 13. So that's where we are today. Matthew 13, and we got seven parables, and we have, uh, we have seven churches, and I'm saying to you of Revelation 1 through 3, and I'm saying to you that I can tie that in a, in a nice clean circle and put a bow on it. There's a bow. You know how you know it's a bow? Because I'm calling it a bow right there. That, that makes it one, even though that isn't very good. It, <coughs> the seven churches and the seven parables, like I said, have been raised and, and people want me to address them. And they also contain the element of slavery, especially the parables, but also the seven churches. And that's our current subject. And so it would be prudent to at least include it a bit. Um, and uh, we're going to try to do that. Maybe Revelation 4 also. I said maybe. By maybe I mean no, I won't do the rapture.
today. I just didn't have time. I thought I might, but I didn't. But first, we've got to briefly recount from lecture number 53. The most important point, in my opinion, from lecture 53, number one, if you begin to grasp a hold of this, it helps you. It is like a, a piece of armor. When you walk into a, a, a church or any kind of organization that is quasi-religious and they begin to tell you something, you have this one piece, you have this one shield, and that is this. The Bible is written from the perspective that all time exists. When you understand that, you got yourself a sword, fully automatic, 223, 308. You've got something that you can fight with. The Bible is written from the perspective that all time exists. I think from last week, that is far and away the most important thing that I could bring to you. And that leads to the second most important point from Lecture 53. The Bible is written from a frame of reference that it is also above time. So all time exists, but the Bible is not inside of time. It's outside of time. And that moves us to the third most important point from lecture number 53, that the author of Scripture must therefore be who? The creator of time. And hopefully everyone sees the declaration of Jesus Christ at Revelation 1.8. I am the Aleph and the Tav, the beginning and the end. He, he has... All things inside of him. He is infinite. For what it is, he is the creator of time. That's what that is saying. I am the beginning and the end. That is, I am the creator of time. Colossians 1, 15 through 18. If you're going to read one verse in the Bible every day, Colossians 1, 15 through 18 is never going to let you down. No scripture will, but that one is going to also, that's another sword, shield, fully automatic system. Revelation 1, 8 sends the wise... I am the beginning of the end to John 8:24 where Christ says if you do not believe that I am you will die in your sins the beginning and the end and the I am is the same thing and you have to believe it I walked in let's just pick on the churches some more since I'm in the mood I walked in these churches and asked them is Jesus Christ outside of time how many of them would say yes 1% They have Christ subordinate to God. They have him subordinate to the creation. They have him subordinate to time. Can't do it. It's not just illogical. It's blasphemous. When you're talking about time, you're in a discussion of timelessness. Void zero. Non-entropy. Why doesn't the church know that? Why don't they care about it? I've been doing this for, you know, two or three hundred years now. It shows, doesn't it? Some people laugh. Some people think, yeah, look at this guy. He looks really bad. Whose decision was it to give me mirrors and put me on film? Both of them destructive to my self-esteem. But why doesn't the church care about 
You must, for if you don't believe I am, you will die in your sins. I am the beginning and the end. They're the same. His very name, Exodus 3.14, the I am that I am is an expression of his being, the author, the creator, the timelessness one who created time. As you know, I constantly say it. I said it again this week. I say it almost every week. I've got to get it in. I see the urgency of it. It's missing in the church, and the church has become the source of imbecilic thinking. And the country is the worst for it. The church is so simple now, it's, it's, it's below pre-kindergarten. They love it. Proverbs one twenty two. Whenever we read the words of God, we must remember that his frame of observation is from a perspective that all time exists. What we see is not what he sees. Can I get a big duh? Uh, Yeah, thank you. Most guys want amen, not me. I want duh. Now, apply this rule, this Colossians 1, 15 to 18. Everything Christ says, always. Christ says this. He does this. Everything that he says is always outside of time. And from a perspective that all time exists. In this case, we're we're in slavery. So everything God says about slavery, you have to say to yourself, this is from the being, the only being who is not subject to time. Not subject to entropy. I am God. I do not change. There you go. Malachi 3. What is it? Let me look it up again. 3.6. I better get it right. I'm just going to say 3.16, but I'm not positive I'm right about that. Is it 3.6? Somebody help me. 3.6. If you name your son Malachi, the first thing you should do is take him to Malachi 3.6. I am God. I don't change can't change. It's impossible for him to change. What are the implications of that? You give your son or your children that truth, chances that they're imbeciles is smaller. They're going to be 16. You can't stop that. Nothing you can do. Okay. Make sure I'm in the right place now. On to negative time and imaginary numbers. Everyone say, thanks, Ralph. There you go. In unison, on three, a little louder. One, two, three. Thanks, Ralph. There you go. This is where we are. An imaginary number is a complex number. Here you go, right? And that's written using the letter, in this case, lowercase i. You'll see a lowercase i, and that's an imaginary number. That's how they designate it. And it's represented, if you will, imaginary numbers. If you square an imaginary number, you end up with negative one. Does anybody care about this? Just checking. Oh, I got kind of a half-hearted one. That's, that's all I need. Thank you, Jennifer. <laughs> and that means if, if the square of imaginary number is negative one, that means if, if, if I have an imaginary number and it's multiplied by itself, it will always yield a negative number. Let me just pound that in a second. That's always the case. And if you... Uh, If you prefer, let's try it this way. If I have an exponent 
I'm sorry, not an exponent, but a multiplication uh, decision here. If I multiply x times negative 1, I'm going to get um, a negative result. I'm going to get negative x squared. Does that make any sense to anybody? If you wanted to do it this way, three times an imaginary number is going to give me what? It's going to give me negative nine. Does that make sense? What have I made you do here? I've made you think about imaginary numbers. And I'm acting as if they're what? Real. And you're right with me. Okay, yeah, three times imaginary numbers, negative nine. <laughs> Who established this? You should have seen it when this first happened. You ought to write, read sometime for fun, Rene Descartes. It's in French, but he, he thought this was ridiculous. Brilliant Cartesian geometry, right? Brilliant mathematician and philosopher. But the, the, this begins to be fun, as I define fun, uh, when you combine imaginary numbers with real numbers, which causes me to ask this. They tell you they're real numbers, but are numbers real? How do you define numbers? If I write a number on a piece of paper, does that make that number real? What's the difference between imaginary numbers and real numbers? Go ahead and contemplate the reality of numbers for a while. And the origin of numbers, all of mathematics for that case, where did mathematics come from? You've heard me say language and mathematics. They're theological issues. And I'll continue to have fun as I have fun. Now, I can add something. I can add a 2. I can say 2 plus xi. So I've said that this is, this is real. The x is also real. It's the unknown. But I can assign a value to x. The only thing that's not real is the... So this is not real. This is real. And this is real. I could have 2y plus x imaginary, and the y would be considered real in mathematics. Do you have any questions about that? Are you even the slightest bit skeptical? I hope so. What's cool about doing this, as I define cool, is we have interwoven the real with the imaginary in mathematics. Why did they do that? They recognize something, the mathematics uh, people. We've, we have interwoven the physical with the non-physical. What is the greatest interweaving of the physical and the non-physical that you are aware of? Human beings, that's absolutely right. The animal kingdom. And uh, humanity, most of humanity defines real as physical. But I'm saying to you that mathematics says no we recognize a non-physical imaginary reality that we can put into calculations that, re that result in value. So, the point being, yea, a point. Can a human mind determine what is real? What is real and what is imaginary? Can a human mind do that? Now, attached to that, again, thanks, Ralph, is the concept of imaginary time or negative time. All I'm trying to accomplish today is what? 
The terminology, that's right. I'm just bringing the terminology to you. How come I'm bringing the terminology to you? Because I do not want you to be an imbecilic thinker. I'm trying to get you used to it so that you begin to think in complex ways. If you think in complex ways, you are not just insulated from what's going on in the church and the country today, but you are actually uh, outside of it. You will not be affected by it. That's the plan. So imaginary time and negative time. If I say imaginary number, then I've got to say imaginary time because I have a relationship between math and time. What is the relationship? Which one's bigger, time or math? I asked you before, what is bigger, infinity or time? We solved that. Revelation 1. But start thinking about the imaginary time and negative time. For example, human beings, when I say human beings, I don't mean you. Human beings instinctively speak of tomorrow. There's a song, but I'll just give it to you this way. Asking, we ask it this way. What will occur tomorrow? What will tomorrow bring? That's what we say, isn't it? That's very common. Okay, at Cliffside, only at Cliffside, okay, only me does this, but you should ask this instead. What will happen yesterday? Because now you're into negative time, imaginary time. Let's speed up here in a second. Negative time, if it exists, is a theological discussion. I hope you see that. Thanks, Ralph. What is negative time? What is imaginary time? How long is negative time? If it exists. When was negative time? Can time actually be negative? And if not, why not? And everybody again says, thanks, Ralph. Okay. God speaks of slavery from a place of observation. When you're reading about slavery, when you're reading your Bible, you have to begin. You have to say, start with this. When God is writing and speaking from a place of observation that sees the existence of all of time. And always start that. Say to yourself, then read. When you do that, you will have less opportunity to fool yourself in the Bible. Because you'll have God where he belongs. If you don't put God where he belongs, everything is really difficult. You have all kinds of errors. Put him where he rightfully is. You know that he sees all of time at the same time. He sees all of time in one existence. Start with that. Make your mind do it. Okay? Now, Matthew 13, also Mark 4 and Luke 8. I should put them on the board. Matthew 13, Mark 4, Luke 8. Very difficult subject here. And so we don't have a time to read all of the seven parables, so we'll single out that which is the greatest impact on the meaning of all the parables. And But I mean by that is that we're going to get to the context first. So hopefully this will make sense as I start rushing now. Matthew 13, 1. Okay, here we go. Here we are. Parable of the soils, it says. I do not call it that because that takes away from the sower. I cross it out and write parables of the parable of the sower because it's about Christ. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea and great multitudes were gathered to, to, to him. How big is a great multitude? How many people are in Israel at this time? 
Millions, at least two million. In Jerusalem, you can make the case there were two million. Certainly millions, we can figure that out based on what? The garbage dump and the cemeteries and all of that, right? He got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Started thinking about this. He's in a boat. So he's probably where? Floating in a boat. How still is the water? Just thinking. He can make it pretty darn still if he wants, can he? But he's in a boat, and he's sitting. How many people I got? Let's just be reasonable and say I got 100,000 people. How come he has 100,000 people? Because he can feed all of them and he can heal all of them. And people are coming. Then he spoke many things to them in parables. I asked, how loud does he speak here? How much volume? What are the decibel levels to reach the guy in the back row? What's the answer to that? Don't fall for it. It's a trick question. Yes, it is. How many decibels does it take for Christ to speak to everybody there? Does he have to speak loud to get to the back row? Or can everybody hear it at the same level in their own language? Is that possible? How about the deaf people? Can they hear him? Are there deaf people there? Yeah. Are there blind people there? Is everybody hearing him? Everybody's hearing him. So, put that together first. He is also what? Outside of time. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. So something really amazing is going to happen here, right? And he sowed. As he sowed, some, it doesn't say seed. Your Bible may say seed. Cross it out. It's in italics, not in the text. That's important. Some fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Not it. Them. Think that's important? Probably. Because God, who's telling the story? How he made a mistake. He meant it. Can I get a duh? Thank you. Some fell on stony earth and they immediately sprang up. They immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. Who is that? Every church in Anchorage? Sorry. Not really, fake sorry, little editorial comment. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples said, came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. So we have a discussion on the mystery kingdom here. This is the mystery kingdom. How many mysteries do I have in the Bible with regard to to heaven? Mystery. I hope I got it right. This is the mystery kingdom. How many kingdoms I got? Choose from. I got five kingdoms. Which kingdom is this? This is the mystery kingdom. What is the mystery kingdom? 
I have the eternal kingdom, the universal kingdom. It's the same thing. That is all things. That's the created order, including humanity, the animals, every creature, all the water, everything. That is the eternal kingdom or the universal kingdom of God. It's all things in the created order. I have the spiritual kingdom of God. That's all who believe things, who believe that Christ is God. I have the theocratic kingdom. That's Israel. I have the messianic or the millennial kingdom. And I have the mystery kingdom. That's what the subject is about, is the mystery kingdom. The kingdom of Matthew 13, 11 is the mystery kingdom. That which occurs after Matthew 12. What happened at Matthew 12? They rejected Christ as the Messiah. So this is what happens next. God is telling them what's going to happen now that he's been rejected by the nation of Israel. The theocratic kingdom rejected him. So what takes its place? The mystery kingdom. That's the context. You don't have that. Boom, lacka, lacka, lacka. Crash. It is commonly referred to as Christendom. You'll see it in theological circles as Christendom. I like to refer it to as Christendom. Christendom is all-encompassing, as you might guess, because it includes those who present God, Jesus Christ in heretical frameworks as well as those who believe in who he really is. In other words, Christendom has every apostasy, every blasphemy, every outright stupid, nonsensical, imbecilic portrayals of Christ conceived by the wolves who have infiltrated and taken over the church of today. And these are the Christianized cults. I can name them. But you can do it too. They have Jesus Christ in their name. But they are not Christian. They have heretical... Well, they may be Christian, but they have heretical frameworks. They have elements of Christ, but the elements are usually... uh, Have no basis in the truth of the person of Christ. And Peter... I'm sorry, Paul warns against those in Timothy, as does Peter in the epistles of Peter. Talks about these churches. Beware of these churches. So what's the first question you should ask? Am I in one? Jesus Christ himself, Revelation 3.20, Revelation 2.6, Revelation 2.20 and 21. And obviously, Matthew 13, here in Matthew 13, tells us the church will be subject to corruption. The church will succumb to apostates. And here at Matthew 13, that's exactly what he's doing. And he gives us, behold, a sower. Obviously, Christ is the sower. He has come to sow. He is the sower. After he was rejected by the theocratic kingdom, he begins sowing for the mystery kingdom. He's outside of time. Does he know the mystery kingdom will be a mess? Yes, he does. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and birds came and devoured them. How come he didn't pick wolves? He didn't. He picked birds. And I asked, some fell. Who are the some that fell? Who fell? Who are the devouring birds? Who are the some who fell on the stony places, who sprang up but had no root, and the sun came out and burned them? Literally, they were toasted. They looked good for a while. Down. Who are they? No root. What's a root? Do you have a root? Let me read it again. 
But when the sun was up, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. What would you expect that to say? You would expect it to say because they had no roots. Does not say roots. There is no S. You think God meant to pluralize it, but oops. What is the root? The person of Christ, you better have it. It better be right. It can't be nonsense. It can't be, what's my favorite word today, imbecilic. Can't be. So who are the some that, uh, that fell into the thorns? Who are the thorns? To repeat, this is a condition of the mystery kingdom from Matthew 12 to the end of the tribulation. At Matthew 13, 18 through 23, Christ explains this parable. Here's what he does. Uh, let's just grab it here. Uh, let me start. But blessed are your eyes at verse 16. I'll skip the first three. For they see and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, which kingdom is this? And does not understand it. So we're going to have people that hear the word of the kingdom and they're not going to understand it. Why not? And the wicked one comes and snatches away that which was sown in his heart. So now you know who the birds are. They're the wicked ones. This is he who received uh, received seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places... Stony places. This is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when the tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and cares of this world. And the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. Can't get a better church Description than that. Where in Revelation does it say that? It says that in the church prophecy. But he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word, understands it. So you can't just hear it. You've got to understand it. Again, I'd love to go to all these churches and give them an exam. How many would understand the root? The one who hears the word and understands who indeed bears fruit and produces some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Jesus Christ, the infinite God of creation, tells us that the devouring birds are the wicked who, who snatch away that which was sown. So what is it that is sown? It cannot be what? It cannot, please say it. It cannot be what? It cannot be salvation. Your salvation cannot be snatched away, so forget that. Satan cannot steal our salvation. Immediately strike that from your thinking. Christ at Mark 4.13 tells us the importance of understanding the parable of the sower. Do you understand this parable, Christ says? How if you do, he says, do you not understand this parable? If you do not understand this parable, how then will you understand all of the parables? So if you don't understand the parable of the sower, the rest of them are going to be completely meaningless to you. You might as well poke your eyes out. You're not going to understand them. 
You don't literally do that. Get an eye patch. Eye patches are cool. But you're not going to understand it. If we do not understand the first parable, then the others will be unknowable. That's what God says. All righty then. We better get the sower correct. The remaining six or eight or, you know, whatever you view you have, depending on how you count, relies on the first. There are four received states. The devoured state, the rocky stone state, the thorn state, and the good ground. So what is received seed? What does received seed mean? That's probably critical. Better have that soundly decided. In any event, the pattern begins to emerge, doesn't it? The template, if you, if you will. That which characterizes the mystery kingdom, the church age, is going to have this receiving. And then what else is coming? Wickedness. We're going to have this conflict between receiving and the sons of the wicked one. Christ sows and Satan attacks. We should expect this in every parable. I can read the wheat and the tares. That's next. I won't read it, but you can immediately see tares are put out. What happens? But while the men, I'm sorry, wheat was put out. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in the field, but while men slept, the enemy came and sowed tares. So I have the same pattern. I have good seed. I have receiving seed. And then I have the enemy coming. The wheat and tares continue the established contextual meaning of the sower. He repeats it. How come you think he repeats it? Because we don't get it. The sower is the foundation. The others, the following parables, are more information. By the way, that is exactly the same as what? In other words, I have a piece of information and then I have more information following it. What is that called in the Bible? Recurrence. The Hebrew principle of recurrence. Fundamentally, what is the first book in the Bible where the Hebrew principle of recurrence is obvious? Genesis. So whoever said the parable clearly wrote Genesis. No doubt about it. Exactly as Genesis was written. You might think that God's a Jew based on that. Oh, wait. Anyway, now we can move on to the parable of the mustard seed. What must it have? I must have something good followed by what? Something wicked. Got to have it. Another parable which he put forth to them, the kingdom of heaven, the mystery kingdom, is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in the field. So far, so good. Which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But but when it was grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds come and land in it. Okay, we have a wicked nesting in a mustard tree. Not a mustard bush. Somehow the mustard bush has become a mutated large tree and it's got birds in it. And some people will say, no, you're wrong, you, whatever they call me. Oh, the answer me, that dude. Sorry, I forgot for a minute. Does the rememberer of all things who just said a few minutes ago, Max, maybe not even that. He just said, and remember, he's God, the God of creation, remembers all things. Did he, he specifically identified birds in Matthew 13, 19 as the wicked ones. And he mentions the birds again. The birds of the air snatched away. Now the birds come and nest. You think, oh, the first one were bad birds. The next one, oh, those are good birds nesting, singing little songs. Aren't they sweet? Can I get a duh? Thank you. Needs to be two syllables. Duh, uh, I think. We'll practice next week. 
Some theologians propose that the birds of the mustard tree are nice birds, little sparrows singing sweetly. Obviously, this view neglects the template, cannot withstand scrutiny. The mustard parable has the sower, that's the man, that's Christ, has the seed, has the enemy, just as the first parable. Notice that the tares begin with another parable he put forth. Same for the mustard tree, another parable he put forth. Huge surprise, the woman parable begins with what? Another parable, he spoke to them. Another parable, another parable, another parable. Do you think God, the I am, the word made flesh, is tying these three to each other? Obviously he is. Because he's outside of time. Now I say to read Matthew 13:33 through 1, I don't have, can't find time to do that. Of course you can't find time, idiot. Why would you say that? Can I get a duh-uh? Yeah. A woman took and hid the leaven into the bread. A woman, almost always a nation or an ecclesiastical entity. Either the wife of YHVH, which is Israel, or the virgin bride of Christ, which is the church, or the great harlot Jezebel, the evil church of the Antichrist. Leaven is a symbol of sin, predominantly, overwhelmingly evil. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, Matthew 6, 6 through 12, specifically, 16, 6 through 12, specifically, it is apostasy. The woman has taken leaven and mixed it into the bread. The pattern's the same. Pattern holds. Three in a row. Probably an accident. You, you might have to be outside of time. Never mind. The next three, if you look at the next three, again, the kingdom of heaven is like, again, the kingdom of heaven is like, again, the kingdom of heaven is like. What is God saying with these three? How does Matthew 13 fit into the seven churches of the book of Revelation? The book of Revelation tells us that the seventh church, the Laodicean church, the age that we are in, is the first three parables. Got leaven in it. I got birds everywhere. I got a bunch of dumb sheep. Welcome to the last age. The more you know, the less you're fooled. 